Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast, brought to you by Simply Physio, aimed at helping you live an enjoyable, fit, and healthy life in and around our community of Knoxville, Tennessee. And now, here is your host, Dr. John Mark Chesney. Hey guys, welcome to our podcast episode today. I am super excited and honored to have our guest today, Dr. Kevin Sprouse. If you haven't heard of him, he is very well known in the endurance athlete arena, and um, he uh, is owner uh, locally of uh, Podium Sports Medicine, but he works with athletes all around the world. Uh, He serves as uh, the head of medicine for EF Education First Pro Cycling, and he works with elite and professional athletes across numerous sports and disciplines, including professional cycling, triathlons. PGA golfers, NFL players, MLB players, Olympic track and field athletes, and many more. Dr. Sprouse, his unique experience and expertise are sought by high-performing athletes, executives, and health-conscious individuals across the country and around the world. He obtained his degree in exercise science uh, from Wake Forest University before attending medical school at Virginia College of Osteopathic Medicine at Virginia Tech. He then completed his emergency medicine residency in New York City, where he was selected to be chief resident. Following residency, he completed a fellowship in sports medicine at Stedman Hawkins Clinic in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, The focus of his academic interest and practice has been the care of the high-performance athlete, as well as how um, to uh, exercise, diet, and uh, recover well, including health and sports medicine. He assists clients, his clients, for well-being so that they can perform at the highest level. Uh, So super excited to delve into understanding a little bit more about how Dr. Sprouse um, got uh, to where he is today. So welcome to the show, Dr. Sprouse. Cool. Yeah, thank you for having me. I think it's going to be a fun conversation. We love to start to hear more of your journey. What really brought you into the field of medicine And then how did that uh, understand, you know, you worked in in emergency care and then, you know, sports medicine. So talk a little bit about uh, that journey for you. I mean, it's definitely a journey. I I was thinking back recently, I don't know, in the last week or so, um, something came up about a specific point along that journey 15, 20 years ago and um, made me feel old thinking back on it. But so I graduated high school uh, from Bearden here in Knoxville and I'd say probably at Bearden, I started thinking about medicine, but I wasn't quite sure I wanted to go that direction. Uh, when I got to college at Wake Forest, I started studying physics and was fascinated by the mechanics of physics. And then we got into theoretical math and I realized that physics was not going to be for me. And so that's when I got into exercise science, which is biomechanics, physiology. People think of it as working with athletes at that point, but it's really just, it's not defined by athletes. It's more movement and how the body works when stressed. I got really interested in those concepts and very interested in the components of performance within that. Then graduated college and took a couple years as a uh, backcountry guide. So no direct line there, right? So I I was studying and, and very focused on one kind of path, but I didn't know where it was going. At the time, Medicine was on the radar, but I definitely wasn't uh, sold on that as a career. And so I ended up spending some time as a rock climbing guide, rafting guide, um, lived in Colorado, Washington, Oregon, um, usually in the summers. And then in the winter, I'd come back to the Southeast and I worked as a a paramedic. I worked as a um, orthopedic tech. Uh, 
And so I'd kind of play around, dabble in medicine, sure. get a feel for what was going on. And then the weather would get nice and I'd bolt and go play outside. And eventually I realized I needed to kind of grow up a bit and find a career. Kind of come to this idea that I did want to do medicine. I just didn't know what. I thought orthopedics. Mm-hmm. And so I went to medical school thinking I would do orthopedics. Part of the way medical school works is the first two years, traditionally and typically in most places, you do a lot of the book work, you're in classes. And then the second two years, you do rotations. So it's rotations are hands-on, clinical experiences, following doctors, working with residents. I enjoyed orthopedics, but I didn't have the attention span for it to be like the knee guy or the shoulder guy and, sure. and just do that all the time. I, I, there's nothing good or bad about it. It just didn't suit me. I'm amazed by those guys that just totally hone their skill in that direction, but I didn't have the attention span. And so I did a rotation in emergency medicine and really fell in love with the fact that it's, I mean, you walk and you see one patient and it may be orthopedic. It may be a, a knee or a fracture or whatever, but then you walk in the next one and it's a lady giving birth and you walk in the next one and it's a heart attack. And so you kind of had to know a little bit about everything and be proficient enough to handle kind of the stuff that comes in the ER typically isn't benign, sure. right? Or there's at least a concern that it's not. And so you, you can't just be acquainted with it. You have to know it quite well, at least the acute management. And so I did that, ended up going to New York City to a, a, a program within the Weill Cornell medical system for residency. And did my residency in emergency medicine there, which is a quite the experience in New York City. I enjoyed the experience. I found it very tiring. I mean, residency is. Residency is an awful experience for anyone who does it. But the practice of medicine, the pace, the fact that we were always dealing with chronic issues that, like, you think in emergency medicine it's going to be gunshots and car wrecks and heart attacks, but a lot of it was just chronic issues that would boil to the point that they needed some acute care. Mm-hmm. And then they'd call their doctor. They couldn't get it in the office. So they'd come into us. And it was not really what I wanted. And I felt like we were just slapping Band-Aids on lots of things. Sure. Never really fixing the people with you know brittle diabetes or uh, blood pressure they couldn't control. or And so having the background in exercise science, exercise physiology, and recognizing that we were totally overlooking the lifestyle component, it just got me thinking during that residency process of how I could use my prior training and bring it into medicine. And along with that, I'd become interested in cycling. I was racing myself. I I enjoyed running and really just was having kind of a, a parallel conversation in my own head on how I could bring those same things to performance medicine. Like, is there a way, what I recognize is in Europe, Sports doctors do a lot of working with biomechanics and physiology and nutrition. And in the U.S., that doesn't really exist or not mm-hmm. not to any great degree. With all that swirling in my head, I kind of thought there's an opening here in something that I'm really interested in to bring performance and prevention into medicine and work with people who are interested in kind of dedicating themselves to these tenants and seeing how good they can be, not just as athletes, but just in general. And so that's when I became interested in doing sports medicine and non-operative sports medicine. So that's a lot of musculoskeletal care. We wove in physiology. We wove in nutrition, much more of a kind of a holistic care, if you want to call it that, of an active person. And that's what I ended up applying across the country to to different programs and, and going to the Stedman Hawkins program in Greenville and learning those parts of what I would do. 
So that's kind of the, I guess, the schooling aspect of it. It was a bit of a, a circuitous route, but, um, but a fun one. Sure. And even when most people think sports medicine doctor, I mean, that's probably not how you really describe yourself or your practice, like kind of the stereotypical sports medicine, um, just with what you do. Was there um, a model or somebody that that you kind of saw like working and like, that's what I want to do? Or did you just kind of like, I know what I want to do. I'm just going to create it. No, it was a little of both, but I think more the former in noticing that there were specific places in Europe as I got into cycling and kind of paying attention to how those athletes trained and how they were treated and cared for. There were these centers in Europe where the physicians very much worked with athletes. They did VO2 max testing. They did lactate testing. Uh, They looked at their nutrition. They helped them with altitude training. Really looked at things very differently than sports medicine doctors here in the U.S., which typically in the U.S., a sports medicine doctor, really, if, if you get into it from how the training works, it's somebody who works with upper extremity and maybe the knee, uh, usually with an orthopedic background. It's very musculoskeletal, lots of injections and things like that. Mm-hmm. All great stuff, but it's it's not as wide-reaching as the title might kind of suggest. Sure. And there's actually been a move toward, I'd say in the last five to 10 years, kind of renaming it sports and exercise medicine so that it does kind of belie this work away from just injury, but uh, with performance and metabolism and all these other things that are important. 15 years ago, there wasn't much of that in the U.S. Today, there's considerably more, not that it's terribly prevalent, but you're starting to see it come out, but it's really built on the back of what a lot of the European countries set up probably 30 years ago. Because there's definitely a more emphasis on on performance, like where maybe the stereotypical sports medicine doctor, you know, they're not a surgeon typically. And so they're trying to prevent somebody from needing surgery. Yeah. You know, somebody who's injured, helping them kind of get back on their feet so they can run or do or just move well, right, without yeah. needing to go down the surgical route. Right. Which is a great practice. Definitely. I mean, it's a, it's it's a, a very need. cool thing to do. Yeah, Absolutely. And it's, and it's a big need to, you know, any... Anybody who works in the field of helping people to avoid surgery, yeah, is is valid, and um, and we need more of that too, for sure. And even not just avoid the surgery, but sometimes put it off because sure. there's benefit to putting it off. And sometimes it's just proving that yeah, surgery is actually the best step now because you've yeah. exhausted these other efforts. I think it's really just taking a more complete look at it and and all the options out there. When you mentioned being aware of some of the European model, is that something you went to go visit or um, kind of taste? I did. So I ended up uh, after actually during fellowship working with a U.S.-based cycling team that raced all over the world. I worked with their development program first, which is 23-year-olds and younger. And then at the end of that year, they needed someone to kind of initially fill in but then step into a role in the medical team at the at the higher level, at the world tour level. And that's like the Tour de France level. And so I started working within that. And some of our doctors on the team were European and worked in facilities like that. When I would take athletes in Europe for treatment or surgery or whatever else, testing, I would see these centers and I started to meet some of the people that worked in them. So it became kind of an organic introduction to that. I knew they existed. I knew that's where I wanted to go. And then cycling fortuitously ended up being a route for me to experience that and get a little more insight into what those those places looked like. So I understand that um, 
I mean, you work with various level types of athletes and with your background in cycling, and I know you help out with on the tour, the Tour de France, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the, the pro cycling team. Is that kind of a special interest, special niche of your practice that you really, uh, if, if you were gravitating towards or really emphasizing, or do you like to just really help any other kind of level athletes in different arenas? So it started out that I worked primarily with endurance athletes and within that primarily cyclists. Mm -hmm. And that was very much, I mean, I'll say by design, it was by interest. Back when I was training, I had this episode where I worked a long shift in the uh, cardiac intensive care unit. We're only supposed to work, I can't remember, 36 hours in a row. And then you've got to leave, but it never quite worked out that way. Yeah. There are hours uh, limits, but they're not strictly followed or they weren't. 10, 15 years ago. And so I'd done a fairly long shift and then had been there doing paperwork. And I came home and it was middle of the day, but I'd not slept in a while. And I was kind of too tired to sleep. And so I turned on the Tour de France, which I was inter interested to see. And they, they interviewed a guy who was the head doc for this team that was racing, the team that I ended up working for. And it turned out he was an emergency medicine doctor with a sports medicine background and got into working for the team and traveling all over Europe. And it just kind of hit me. I was like, I didn't even realize that could be a career. Like that, that sounds fun. And so ended up finding his contact information, mm. meeting him. He became a mentor. From that point, my career went very much down a cycling route. It was only once I'd come to Knoxville, finished training, was working here kind of part-time as an ER doctor and then working with the cycling team for sports medicine that people would start to ask you, hey, can I come see you for sports medicine stuff? And I was like, well, not really. I don't have a clinic. I just work in Europe with the team and then I'm in the ER here. And so eventually set up a clinic here and started working with athletes, initially in like in, endurance athletes. And we would do testing, um, VO2 max testing and test their sweat, sodium levels and all the stuff that we would do with a, a pro team. And then I started seeing athletes from other disciplines. You know, a cyclist knew a, a runner who knew a track and field athlete who knew a golfer, baseball player, whatever, and it just kind of grew. And so at this point, I work with athletes across you know, multiple professional Arenas. and recreational sports. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you start, when did you start your practice then? I think we opened the doors here in Knoxville in 2014. Okay. I'd have to go back and look, but around that time. Okay. And it sounds like that's, I mean, really grown now because that's what you're doing full time, right? It is, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I still work with the cycling team. So I'm, it's not a full-time job with them, but I'm staffed with them. And then my practice is definitely full-time. It grew to the point that we actually shrunk it. Uh, so at this point, I work with patients on the basis of an annual retainer, and we limit uh, the number of patients drastically. We keep it around 30 patients, and they're all over the country. So we've got a few in town, but most of the patients are in Chicago, New York, California, Austin, Texas, kind okay. of scattered across. Nice. And then you travel quite a bit too, right? What kind of events are you going to? So uh, a lot of cycling stuff. Okay. That's been a little harder the last uh, year and a half, two years because of COVID. I went to the Tour de France this year, which was my eighth Tour de France. Uh, I had to miss the one before that, which was tough. But they had it last year? They did, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they had it late. They had it in September last year and okay. then back to the normal time this year. But going to, to cycling events, cycling training camps, PGA events, I've probably been to six or eight PGA events this year. Other training camps uh, with, with other athletes, 
went to some gravel and mountain bike races, going to a professional mountain bike race in West Virginia this week. So, and what's fun is a lot of times I get to take the family. And so we make it, you know, it's a work trip, but we get to go to the beach because that's where the golf tournament is, or we get to go to Spain because that's where the the race is and take the kids to the mountains. It's fun. You know, a lot of our listeners with the podcast, and we have listeners all over, but the emphasis is here around Knoxville. And, you know, a lot of our listeners may not be professional level athletes. I was talking with um, Dr. Sprouse about coming on the podcast and, you know, had the idea of like, what can, what can we learn like from your experience training these high level, professional level, you know, athletes that are dedicating their time, attention, resources, you know, to be at, you know, competing at, you know, world, you know, level. So, so we're going to take a quick break, hear a word from our sponsor. And then when we come back, we're going to go into hearing from Dr. Sprouse on tips that we can learn from the pros. Stay Healthy Knoxville is sponsored by Simply Physio, a physio clinic that equips and empowers you to live your life to the fullest so that you can enjoy the things you love to do and be the person you are made to be. Simply Physio specializes in helping people get back to a healthy and active lifestyle, living free from pain and medication and avoiding unnecessary surgery. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to receive a special gift from Simply Physio and enjoy listening to the rest of the episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. We've been talking with uh, Dr. Kevin Sprouse about his experience starting off into medicine and working with um, now high-level world-class um, athletes. And so I um, wanted to really pick his brain. This may be for some selfish um, gains as well, <laughs> being that I am not a world-class athlete, but I'd love to uh, improve on you know my ability to you know compete, whether it be a triathlon or a, um, a road race or a bike race. And I know um, we have a lot of clients, too, uh, that come to see us here at Simply Physio that would consider themselves the same, whether they're, you know, setting out to, you know, hike all the trails in the Smokies, or they're playing on a, you know, local tennis team that's, you know, competing at, you know, the state level or senior Olympics. We have a lot of pickleball players, people that, you know, they have other responsibilities, whether they have a full-time job, but they still want to do well in, um, you know, their competitive thought of talking with Dr. Sprouse about what can we learn from the pros and you working with the pros as far as tips that we could pick up and um, learn and implement to improve you know, our ability to you know, compete in the, the tasks, the things that we enjoy to do. I like this direction because I feel like I frequently get pigeonholed into the guy that works just with the professional athletes. There's nothing wrong with that. That's kind of fun. But at any given time, probably close to half of my patients are not professional athletes. They're dedicated toward what they do recreationally and from a performance standpoint, but we even look at performance being you know, in the boardroom or you know, how does your morning exercise and your routine around that impact your energy levels, cognition, everything else as you go through the day. And the tenets of that we really pull from high-performance medicine science uh, because there's a lot of very direct correlations. And you know, as I said earlier when we were talking, it's Professional athletes don't always do things differently than the rest of us. They just do them more consistently and and better. Sure. Right? Like they pay more attention to those tenants. And that's where I think we can dig in and learn a lot. Yeah. And I think that's a good point too. Like, you know, I know for myself, I'm able to perform at work like when I'm physically active. Yeah. Right? And moving, uh, move my body, you know, getting some adrenaline going, some other, you know, healthy hormones um, just through exercise, right? And 
when I moved up here, started to practice, I kind of let the demands of everything, of the move, the family transition. And um, I probably had a year-ish where I just wasn't that active. And I was like, man, never again. (laughs) uh, Just because it, you know, it leads into other areas of life, whether it be, you know, work-related or relational. When you're starting off, let's say you're starting off with a new client. Are there certain things that like, hey, these are the things that, you know, we really need to test for? Or what's kind of the process of um, what you would do with starting off with a new client? So one of the benefits of having a client for a full year is that we've got kind of this foundational framework that we work them through. Um, looking at the things that I think are really pillars or foundations of fitness. And by fitness, I don't mean just how fast can you run a 10K, but like like you were alluding to, you know, how, how can you do your exercise, get to work feeling better, have more energy when you get home from work, handling the kids and, you know, being a, a husband, wife, whatever. So what we look at are sleep. We look at nutrition. We look at what we call activity, but that kind of breaks down into training load or like what are you doing to move your body? And then the metabolic components of it. How does that impact the way that your body's functioning on a cellular level? And then we'll occasionally delve into some other topics that are specific to the person. You know, what, if they travel a lot, looking at jet lag and how that impacts things. You know, if they're uh, someone who's very dependent on their cognition in their, in their work, you know, how can we set things up so that all these other things you know, focus on nutrition, focus on exercise doesn't end up taking resources from what you need to do to make money. Sure. Right? <laughs> what is, what's your true job? It's balancing all that. But what we start with initially is a big panel of blood work. So we want to see where the person is just physiologically from a health standpoint. It doesn't do us a lot of good to focus on sleep and various components of their sleep if it turns out that they've got leukemia or something. You know, So you always want to like, really delve into their health right there first and foremost, make sure that everything in the blood work looks good. And then you can kind of go off into the tenants that help support that. So panel of blood work would be, you know, looking at hormone levels, like you mentioned, looking at cholesterol, looking at their blood sugar, various vitamins, minerals, nutrient levels, and just kind of getting a broad look at where they start. And then we delve into those other things. If do you find uh, then with looking at the initial like blood test that there's a lot of work typically be done there for most people? Yeah, it varies. I would say generally, yes. There's at least a significant amount by which I mean like something something real to address. And it can vary because when I look at the blood work, first I look at it through the filter of is there an illness here? Is there something, I mean, like I haven't had anybody just come in with leukemia, but right. I mentioned, but like- Like red flag or- like Yeah, you wouldn't want to miss that. Yeah. But definitely have- folks come in and it's like, whoa, your cholesterol is way out of whack and your blood sugar's off and maybe you're not as healthy starting here as we thought you were. So mm-hmm. let's dig into that. Frequently, it's low vitamin D. It's um, you know slightly high blood sugar, high insulin levels, often stress-related, maybe low testosterone in men, higher cortisol levels. Uh, they just, as an individual value, may not tell you a whole lot, but when you start to put it all together, you see a picture of someone who's burning the candle at both ends, probably not eating well and, and suffering metabolically because of it. Kind of the lab test that you run, is it pretty common type of like blood work? It is. We live in a time where we can measure all kinds of things yeah. through blood work and wearables and you know all kinds of unique testing that you can send people for, which is fascinating, but there's a lot of noise out there and sometimes not as much true signal that we can latch onto. 
And so I try to be very evidence-informed with what we order. Now, some of it may not be typical. There's a couple ways you can measure a cholesterol panel. And if you go to a standard PCP, GP doc, you'll probably get your total cholesterol, your HDL, your LDL, and triglycerides. But you can do another panel that measures those things as well as particle sizes, particle numbers, looks at things like ApoB, which we know is really the driver of atherosclerosis. Um, we use LDL as a surrogate for that a lot of times, um, but we can just measure ApoB, so let's measure it. Um, we look at uh, lipoprotein A, which is an independent risk factor that can be elevated when some of the other lipids aren't. And so my take is we're going to cast a wider net, but do it in a way that has some evidence behind the results and how we interpret those. You made a reference of, okay, so we you know find some things are off and then we need to address it. Yeah. Right? So... I'm sure there's a lot of different uh, directions of what does it mean to address it. Yeah. Occasionally, it's through medications. You know, if somebody is a ticking time bomb for some reason. Sure. But typically, it's lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And lifestyle is really comes down to those, those things we talked about a minute ago, sleep, nutrition, um, and exercise and metabolism. What we do is we'll look, you know, along with the blood work, we take a family history, a personal medical history, get an idea of their goals. I, I put patients on devices that will measure their sleep. We give them uh, Wi-Fi connected scales so we can see each week what their weight is doing. Like we're following all this stuff. When we kind of understand where they are, where they want to go, and what the barrier to that is, or what the problem is that's keeping them from that, then we can look at things like sleep. You know, if your testosterone's low, there's a really good chance you don't need a shot of testosterone. You probably need to sleep more than four and a half hours a night. Mm-hmm. And so we measure the sleep, and then we start to dig into what's holding them back. Is it sleep apnea? Like, is that is it a clinical thing? Or is it the fact that you stay up till midnight every night answering emails and then you wake up at 4.30 so that you can get your workout in before you go to work? So we'll look at that. We'll look at nutrition. You know, a lot of people think they eat well. And then when you start to dig into it, you realize it's not quite as clean or as good as they think it is. And so we'll use devices like uh, glucose monitors. I've actually got one on my arm now that gives me 24-7 uh, blood glucose. And I'm not diabetic, but I did have a period of time six or eight years ago where my blood work was kind of trending that way Hmm. for lots of reasons, sleep being one of them. Because if you don't sleep, you become insulin resistant. I won't delve into that. And that's an oversimplification, but it is true. And so giving someone the insight or the visibility into what they're doing with something like a glucose monitor, having them log their food for a few days and then sitting down and saying, okay, what's happening here? What do we need to change? What do you not recognize what's not evident to you that you're doing that is harmful. And oftentimes it's not rocket science. It's just bringing it to the forefront of their attention and then structuring their day so that that easy decision isn't a trip through the drive through window, but the easy decision is the good food that they have stocked in their office or home or whatever, knowing that this time is coming. You mentioned really three, I believe three kind of tenants, um, if you will, sleep, yeah. So if we're talking about sleep, yeah, what do you find? You can easily measure, you know, anybody as far as how long how, how long are you sleeping for, right? Yeah. Are there other things though, that you would recommend somebody who's questioning their quality or how well they're actually sleeping if that's a piece that they need to work more towards? Like you mentioned, sleep duration is the biggest key. Yeah. Right. If you're if you're going to bed 6 hours before you wake up, even if you're not measuring anything except you know what time you got in bed and what time you woke yeah. up, that's probably not enough. Most people need seven to nine hours. There's some independent 
uh, variation there. And I'm not someone who says, you know, you got to get eight hours every night or you're failing. But if you're very active and you're getting five and a half to six, that's not enough. Yeah. I feel very confident in that. Yeah. So looking at sleep duration is, is important. There's wearables you can uh, employ with patients to look at uh, sleep qualities, what we call sleep architecture. So that's looking at the staging that, you know, how long were you in deep sleep? How long were you in REM sleep, light sleep? How often did you wake up? And you can use something like an aura ring, which I've got here on my finger. You can use a whoop strap. Mm -hmm. Apple Watch does some of this. Garmin, you know, there's numerous devices. They measure this with varying accuracy. And I don't get too hung up on the absolute numbers, but look at it in terms of buckets. So kind of like with sleep duration. If it's five hours, we know it's not enough. If it's 7.15, it's probably fine, right? Like it may not be ideal, but we're not going to sweat whether it's 7.15 or eight hours. And I'll look at it the same way with, with sleep staging. The wake-ups are a little hard because the devices aren't great at measuring as much when people wake up. But if you have this a feeling that somebody's constantly waking up through the night or their partner says that they snore a lot or stop breathing, then you might want to you know, look clinically sure. for sleep apnea. So these devices, these, these measuring devices, are good enough for clinical use. By clinical, I mean like, working with a patient, not a diagnosis in a, in a sleep center, but like at least rolling out there and using in a proactive manner. They're not accurate enough to like run studies and use in a hospital and things like that, but they're, they're great for everyday use. I think that's one, you know, as we're, you know, talking about some things that people can easily, you know, apply and take from this podcast to improve their level of performance, whether it be in life at work or in their um, recreation or sport. Um, so sleep is a huge piece. Yeah. Um, I mean, without, without good sleep, yeah. the other stuff falls apart. Sure. Right. Like your, your training plan becomes counterproductive. Your exercise regimen is counterproductive. Sure. You're just wearing yourself down. So sleep's foundational. Yeah. I had a, had a client just getting started here recently and, and I usually talk, you know, ask about, you know, some of these patterns and he's dealing with some chronic pain and he, he's telling me he gets, you know, four and a half hours of sleep. It's like, like, it's not that we can't make improvement, but like, it's going to be harder <laughs> really when hard. you're not getting rest and yeah. you're not, your body's not recovering. It, that is a, a barrier that is going to slow down your progress. That time of sleep, your brain releases growth hormone and your body's kind of signaled to do all the repair processes. Um, and if you don't have that, or if you have a grossly inadequate amount of time, then you're not going to repair. You are going to be sore. Like it's going to be, and then it becomes this cycle, right? You're sore. You can't sleep because of the pain, but yeah, you can't heal the pain because you can't exactly. sleep. It's, it's, it can Snowballs. get ugly. Yeah. <laughs> sleep is a, you know, good topic for, you know, people listening to really explore more. And I kind of find it's, you know, a lot of things that we've talked about so far, it's not necessarily rocket science. We can make it rocket science. <laughs> I mean, you know, dive, delve into like the real nick gritty specifics, but uh, for the most part, I mean, I would imagine you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a lot to be gained with a little bit of like effort on some of the tenets of these things. It's the basics. Yeah. And I feel like there's a, a real move in medicine and wellness to complicate these things sure. and to make them sexy and to be able to sell something, right? Like not, not overtly in a nefarious manner to sell something, but like to make your practice and your way of doing things unique and make it stand out because it's hard to say, well, nutrition matters. Well, what diet is great? I don't know. I mean, paleo might work for somebody. Vegetarian might work for somebody. Like it's, it's going to be individual, but it really comes down to quality of food, 
monitoring your intake, you know, not overdoing it, not underdoing it and eating good stuff. Yeah. And that's kind of like the next topic, right? So diet, nutrition. So if we're just briefly, you know, talking about things for people to explore, if they're honest with themselves, it's an area of, of improvement. How would, what would you suggest for somebody to start looking into or making first steps on improving that arena of their health? I would say the very first thing to do would be to make note of what you eat on a daily basis. We call this a food log, and it can be done just by writing things down. There's plenty of free apps you can use to do it. I don't like people logging food for more than about three or four days because it can become a compulsive thing. Uh, But just take stock of what you're doing. And I think that alone, when you write it down and you don't alter what you do, you just write down what you're doing and then come back to it and look at it. You're like, oh my gosh, that... You know, there were some good choices there, but there were a lot of bad choices. Most of us, if you go through three days, you can think of a few day, a few things you did that were probably suboptimal, but okay, you know, you're running around, picking up kids here and there. Um, but then when you look at objectively how frequently that actually happened, it's more frequent than what your recall would have you believe. Sure. And that's, I mean, that's just human nature. Right. And so first and foremost, take stock of what you're doing. From that just increasing the quality of food. So anything without a label is great. You know, if, if it's produce, if it's fresh, you're going to be on the right course. Uh, they talk about eating around the outside of the, the supermarket, right? I mean, that's the whole idea is once you package things and have to have a label on it and, and an expiration date, you're kind of going the wrong direction. So that's important. But I would say one of the things that, that can really take that a step further, one, working with someone a, a nutritionist, even just in the short term, yeah. whatever, just to help you kind of put structure around your diet. But these glucose monitors are amazing tools. I use them with every patient. They record your blood sugar 24-7 for two weeks. And you may only need to wear it once, but to have that insight into, I just ate this, and now this is what my blood sugar is doing. And we know that blood glucose levels, blood sugar is tightly tied to all sorts of risk factors for cardiac, dementia, cancer. And so to see that that real-time effect of what you do, it's really, I almost feel like saying life-changing is too much, but it's not. To get that information of I just did X and Y happened, and then you go back and, okay, instead I'm going to do Z, and you see something totally different happen, it's powerful. Hmm. And these, right now in the U.S., they require prescription, um, but there are services online where you can go and sign up to get one of these and you know you do a consultation with a doctor and they send you a prescription or whatever it's it's pretty seamless to get one sure i understand even um, getting one they're, they're not that expensive either right they're not i mean they there's a couple brands that make them the there's one called dexcom that has a, a less expensive one out now and i don't know the price of it but they're the one that was used most frequently was around 600 bucks so that was expensive sure Abbott, the pharmaceutical company, makes one called a Freestyle Libre, and they are out of pocket, I want to say about 50, 60 bucks. Yeah. So not insignificant, but pretty affordable as a one-time, one two-time sure. thing for most people. We talked about eating you know, non-labeled food. Mm-hmm. Like That's just a good place to start. If there was another, uh, let's say somebody finds that they do eat um, pretty well, is kind of, if there was just one more step of kind of a recommendation, what would be that next thing that you see could that could take it up kind of one more level? Yeah, well, once you've cut out the processed food, yeah. you're well on your way. Yeah, I think the next step after quality is really figuring out, 
I would say the, the, the ways that you can modulate your diet. And so kind of the big ones are carbohydrate intake. So I, I don't think carbohydrates are bad. They're fantastic fuel for certain efforts and they're unnecessary for others. And by effort, I mean your body burns carbohydrate when you're going hard, when your heart rate is up, when you're over what we call lactate threshold. So that's typically any exercise session that you couldn't do for more than an hour, right? If you're going out on a long hike, you're probably not burning a ton of carbohydrate. Um, if you're going out for a three-mile run all out, you're probably burning all carbohydrate. So if those are two different days that you have, you're going to fuel for one differently than the other. And a lot of people don't understand that, that concept that what you put in your body in terms of fuel should look different depending on what your day looks like. Sure. You, know, you wouldn't put gasoline in your diesel Ford F-350. And so it's really matching the fuel sources. Getting a little more complex, I think, but as a stepwise move through quality and maybe taking a look at your blood sugar and then understanding this concept, you really start to get a lot of the way towards a really good diet without being too onerous. Like if you just understand, it's not saying you have to have this type of beef and this type of, you know, strange vegetable that you can only find at this one market over and wherever. It's it's really just making sure that you understand what you can modulate and how to do that appropriately. Yeah. What's the third kind of arena of, you know, health that attendant of health that you really emphasize? Um, I think you called it metabolic exercise. I forgot the term you used. Yeah, um, we, we typically call it activity okay. um, just to bucket it. But um, that's really looking at training uh, or training load, exercise load, the metabolism that supports that, which kind of bleeds over into, into nutrition. Sure. Of the three, nutrition, sleep, and activity uh, is probably my favorite um, because I love this stuff. So if we look at training load, there's all kinds of things to take into account. So with a pro athlete, you know, we're really trying to oscillate or periodize their training so that they have hard weeks and easy weeks and come to their competition really well-trained but very fresh. Mm-hmm. For those of us that are not making a paycheck at a sporting event, that is not as important from a performance standpoint, but we do know that things like cardiac health are dependent upon that periodization, that oscillation of load. So for people who exercise a lot, there's very good reason to back it off at times. If you find your problem is you don't exercise enough, which is most people, that's probably a something you don't have to worry about. It's more about consistency. So it's figuring out with each patient what they need and how we're gonna, how we're gonna do that. And then it's type of exercise. So if someone is very, uh, what we call glycolytic, they're a sugar burner, um, their, their carbohydrate burn is always high, then we w- may want to move them to where they're a bit more efficient in burning fat and vice versa. What we want to encourage in someone is a metabolism that is flexible, which means that when they need to go out for, they're going to go hike to Lacan, right? It's going to be, a long day, low intensity, but a real effort. Sure, like, yeah. You know, it's just not all out the whole time. That their metabolism is set up well to do that. That they burn fat efficiently. That they can be. Um, that they can recover well from that. That everything is matched. But that if the next week they decide to sign up for a 10k downtown and they want to really push it and see how good they can do, and they're going to be burning carbohydrate, very glycolytic, a totally different effort, shorter, more intense that their physiology is set up 
to switch gears and handle that as well. Because that ability to move between physiologies or ends of the metabolic spectrum is vastly important for overall health. That flexibility is, or, or lack of flexibility is, is involved in diabetes. It's involved in the onset of Alzheimer's. There's mounting evidence, and I feel comfortable saying it's involved in the development of cancer or many cancers. And so, yes, a health component and component of day-to-day performance and how you feel, but it's massively important for long-term health. Hmm. And then we've got movement, which I feel like a lot of people kind of let slide. They feel like if they exercise, they move, or if they walk around through the day, they're moving, but it's a very limited movement pattern. And if you're a cyclist or a runner or whatever it is you do all the time, then you do that all the time. And there's a lot that you don't do. So if you try to take like a a Tour de France cyclist and have them uh, walk, do lateral walks with a band around their ankles, they may just crumble, right? But you may find a 70-year-old woman who's been doing yoga for years who can do that, just run laps around that, that Tour de France rider. A deep squat, you know, just standing there, dropping down, putting your butt on your heels. It should be something that can be done the way you see a five-year-old do it. But most of us have lost that ability because sure. we've just stopped doing it. So all those tenants kind of play into activity, training load or exercise program, the metabolism to support it, and how you move both in that program and away from it. Yeah, so do you find or do you recommend, you give the example of you know the pro cyclist, or you know, let's, let's kind of bring it down to, you know, let's say somebody you know, has some sort of recreational, you know, sport that they do that it's certain patterns of movements and muscles, you know, that they're utilizing to um, improve their ability to, you know, do that specific task to vary it up to have a more diverse pattern. Do you recommend that more for total health or actually improve like performance too? To a point it improves performance. Yeah. There's not a lot of evidence that past a certain point. So kind of reaching a a threshold that you can continue to improve performance by improving overall movement patterns. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to overweight that, but I think for most of us, kind of like with exercise in general, the problem is we're well below that. Like we don't have to worry about reaching that point where we're doing too much. Um, It does come into play for some people, but for most of us, that's not where we need to focus. So it's for overall health, certainly. Tissue health, joint health. Lack of pain or resilience, like being able to play with your kids, your grandkids. And it does foster performance to a point. There's plenty of people, even at the the very high level, who movement patterns are a limiter to their performance. They may have a huge engine, but they just don't have the chassis to really support the the power output. If we were getting specific on movement patterns, are, th- are there certain ones that you would say, hey, for somebody to, you know, this is what I really like to see for somebody to be, just have a good state of health, that we can do these basic movement patterns. Are there ones that, is, is that kind of a direction that you look at, you know, or recommend for people? Kind of, probably not as much as you do, quite right. honestly. Most of the people that come to me are fairly proficient. So they're not struggling with like activities of daily living. Yeah. They're not worried about putting a dish on a top shelf or something like that, which is a legitimate concern. It's just not my patient population. Sure. With my patients, we've used things like functional movement screens and some of the these different paradigms that are out there. None of them are perfect. Yeah. A lot of them have big holes in them. And so we tend to put together a screen or an assessment that's specific to what that person does or the complaints they're having. But oftentimes it involves 
deep squats. Yeah. It involves lunges. It involves kind of what you would call core stability, but looking at it in some of the different ways that I'm sure you do, kind of both open chain, closed chain, um, seeing how they sit on a bike, you know, are they dropping one hip? When they run, are they able to run with a pattern that looks strong or are they kind of swaying side to side and their knees are in and out and all over the place? And then I say, whoa, you're not a runner yet. I, I don't care if you do marathons currently, like this is a setup for disaster. And so it's, it's, it's kind of individualized. I am a very big fan across the board of a daily movement practice, and that can look different for everyone. But what I kind of espouse to patients when they ask is I'm a big fan of waking up in the morning, having a big glass of water, right? I don't care if you put, you know, some people talk about apple cider vinegar or lemon juice and salt. I use all that stuff. Lemon juice. Yeah. <laughs> I use it because it tastes good. and helps me drink the water. I don't know if there's any benefit, sure. um, but it can't hurt. Yeah. So you start off with hydration and then you move. So I'll go, we've got a little area in the house downstairs where we've got some gym equipment and I'll spend 10, 15 minutes while the coffee's brewing where I'll mix it up a little bit each day, but it's always- The coffee's an important part too, right? Yes. Yeah. And you got to do something <laughs> while, it's, while it's brewing. Right? You can't just there sit and stare at it. So it's deep squats and lunges and couch stretches, opening up, you know, just areas that have been tight. Yeah. And it may be some push-ups one day. It may be doing some banded walks one day. But it's kind of 10 minutes I know I have every day to just kind of get things moving. Yeah. And the reason I mention that is because that more so than saying, I want to see exactly how you squat or exactly how you do you know, a deadlift or whatever, I really want to see that every day they're doing something to improve all those patterns yeah. and to pay attention to them. Yeah, and that's what I, I see. Oftentimes we think of that movement piece, you know, something I don't think people reflect on much, you know, whether it's somebody who's, you know, has a more sedentary job, you know, works in an office. There's certain patterns that, you know, positions that you're in. There's certain movements that unless you're intentional about moving in, then for a lot of people, they may ne never really move into that direction. And then before they know it, it can stake up on them and they can lose the ability, you know, to bend backwards, you know, is one, um, you know, specifically. Um, but, I mean, you know, there's other ones, you know, as far as, you know, tightness in the hips and um, other, you know, the head comes forward and other patterns that, you know, can slowly over time really um, change um, the, you know, alignment of, you know, as somebody works in. But, but I think that is a piece that's often missed is, it is, I see it as a form of exercise, but not in the way that I think a lot of people think of exercise as, you know, I got to be, you know, lifting some weights or running. Right. Right. Is exercise. I have to break a sweat. It's got to <laughs> kind of be hard. Right. Um, and this is more restorative and more kind of yeah. feels good. Yeah, and that's definitely, okay. Definitely. And well, um, yeah, thanks for sharing your tips. I think that's, um, it's very interesting reflecting back on, you know, like we talked about here through the episode that, it doesn't have to be groundbreaking like research. Yeah. Like there's these patterns that are tenants almost of, of health because the human body is the human body, you know, back, you know, a century ago to what it is today. And there's certain things that we just all need to be um, enjoying. They're basics for a reason. This, they this don't have pieces. to be complicated. Yeah. You know, if, if, if your diet stinks, taking a probiotic isn't the fix. It's, right. It's fixing your diet. 
Yeah, thanks for sharing with us and really I think this uh, yeah, episode will really be encouraging to others to hear, even, you know, with high level individuals. Yes, you know, they're going to get into some other, you know, more specifics, but where we start are, you know, these tenants and there's a lot of improvement for concentrating on the core basics. Um, so yeah, I'd love to finish um, the episode, um, Dr. Sprouse, with some questions, uh, just uh, more rapid fire of yeah. encouraging people here around Knoxville. If you're not in Knoxville to come visit Knoxville, the first question is, uh, tell us something maybe on your bucket list. Now, you've, you've grown up in Knoxville, like myself. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have to be Knoxville. It could be a little bit outside. You know, you can get to within a um, half a day's drive. But something that you've been wanting to go do, you just haven't um, haven't made it out there yet. I would say the Appalachian Trail. And I don't mean from from Maine to Georgia. <laughs> right. I mean, that's great, but that's <laughs> not, not the ninth, nine-month version of yeah, it. Yeah, that's not in my wheelhouse. <laughs> 2,000 miles. Um, but the part that goes through Tennessee, I've yeah. done most of it in bits and pieces. I really want to do it with my kids, even in bits and pieces. Like we don't have to go do the whole 70, 80 miles. Yeah. But yeah, that's high on my list. Yeah. Through the Smokies you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Nice. All right. What's uh, something you got a free afternoon you like to go experience maybe with the family um, outside around Knoxville? Baker Creek, the, the mountain bike trails in South Knoxville. Yes. And the downhill course and everything the city's built there is absolutely amazing. And every time I'm there, Every time I'm there, we run into people from all over the country. Last time I finished a ride last week, was in the parking lot, and a guy came over. I think he was from Ohio, and he was driving through, hitting a bunch of mountain bike spots. And so it's definitely one to to check out if you're in town. Nice, uh, definitely. That's um, uh, it's area. It's really grown, you know, to the past, you know, five plus years of what they've poured into that area. So, uh, and then what about a favorite restaurant you like to go eat? Knoxville is. We're really fortunate to have lots of great restaurants on the back of Blackberry Farm. You know, a lot of the chefs will go to Blackberry Farm, they'll train and they'll come in town and they'll open a restaurant. And this is a really hard one for me because I like lots of restaurants, uh, especially in the downtown area. But my go-to is Plaid Apron in our little neighborhood. Uh, That is fantastic food, great breakfast, great dinner. What part of town is that? Uh, Sequoia Hills. Okay. So it's actually in the center of the neighborhood, there's this little commercial center that gives it way too much Credit. Like right. it, it's just a couple little shops. There's a new coffee shop there. There's Plaid Apron. There's a realty office. But it's walkable for me. It's you know I can ride my bike uh, down by the river and then hit it on the way back. Nice. It's great. We're uh, leaving our listeners with a recommendation, a tip for really staying healthy. What would that be? I think my tip would be take the long, long approach. Right. Like a lot of people want to fit. They want to find something to fix whatever it is or be healthier in 30 days or do a one week challenge or whatever. And that usually is counterproductive or at least just falls on its face is, you know, when you meet that 30 day mark. And that's why we take at least a one year look with patients is step back, take a year to truly address the basics, not in an over, overly complicated way, sure. but give yourself some grace, some time, recognize that there's going to be good months and bad months, but aim for consistency in those tenants we talked about and give yourself a year to do it and then see where you are. And I, I suspect you'll have a much better outcome than a 14-day challenge. Yeah, I love a quote. We tend to overestimate what we can get done in a short period of time, you know, a week or, you know, a month, but we underestimate what we yeah. can actually do in a long period of time. Yeah. Um, so um, I love that that tip. Thanks for sharing that. Well, how can people um, keep up with you, keep in touch, get to, you know, contact you? Um, tell us about some things that you got going on. Yeah. So my practice is Podium Sports Medicine, and you can go to 
podiumsportsmed.com. And from there, you can contact us by email, um, give us a phone call. Uh, and I think there's a leak on there to our podcast too, which is called The Podium, yeah. where we kind of dig into individual topics like this and, and maybe go, sometimes we get a bit deep and scientific and might, might be interesting on some and not on others. But, uh, but yeah, those are typically the places to find me. I'm not great on social media. I've got an Instagram account. I couldn't tell you what it is. <laughs> um, so those, those are probably the better places. Okay. Well, um, thanks for, so much for coming out. I uh, really oh, enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, our conversation and for you um, sharing with our listeners some really some great advice recommendations on even just keeping us simple and not overcomplicating it but just the power of simplicity in you know these tennis areas of your health so I really appreciate you bringing that to our listeners well thank you I enjoyed the conversation too it's a good time all right and uh, stay healthy Knoxville thank you for tuning in to the stay healthy Knoxville podcast brought to you by simply physio If your pain is preventing you from staying healthy and active and you'd like to avoid surgery, pain medicine, or just want to get back to doing the things you love in and around Knoxville, we offer both a free ebook and free over-the-phone consultation to help you figure out the root cause of your pain and the next best steps for resolving it. Find our ebooks online at simplypt.com slash health tips. There you will find ebooks for topics such as neck and shoulder pain, lower back and hip pain, knee pain, and TMJ. These quick-to-read reports will provide you with expert tips, tricks, and exercises to help solve your pain from the comfort of your own home. Just visit simplypt.com health tips to download your ebook and have it delivered directly to your inbox. We also offer free, no-obligation phone consultations with a doctor of physical therapy to Knoxville area residents. Just call us at 865-351-351. 0615 or visit us at simplypt.com and click the talk to a PT button on the home page to schedule a call with us. Thanks again for joining us and we will see you next time on the Stay Healthy Knoxville podcast.